encourage you to take your Bible. If you don't have one, there's one provided for you in the pew there. And let's turn again to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. We've been spending a couple of weeks here as we begin our journey through this book. Uh, And we've made our way through the first, last week, the first seven verses of Daniel chapter 1. And this morning we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 21. Verses 8 through 21. And I would remind you just for a brief moment to remember, and for those of you who weren't with us last week, just to kind of give you a little introduction of where we are. Uh, The book of Daniel tells the story of Daniel and his three friends who were carried off into captivity in Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, They were taken away from Jerusalem. The city was besieged, and him and his friends were carried off into Babylon. And last week we looked at Nebuchadnezzar's plan was not just one solely of of military might and power, but was really one of the the re-education of those young people who were taken out. Uh, Because he understood that if he could get them to change the way that they thought, the way that they looked at life, uh, they could, he could have far more influence in the nation of Jerusalem than just by sheer force and power. And so Nebuchadnezzar had developed this three-year plan by which these young people who were taken captive would be put through this period of process where they would be treated very well. They'd be given the king's food and the king's wine, this physical effort, but also this process of training them and ingraining them in the spirit and the wisdom and the ways of Babylon. And you remember last week we looked at four different things that Nebuchadnezzar's plan attempted to do. One was isolation. It removed them away from their homes and their families and isolated them into this world that was totally foreign to them. But it was an attempt to to take that foreign land and make it more comfortable than the land that they knew. And we see again, we talked about this last week, we see this happening in our world around us where the world tries to isolate us as individuals. Uh, tries to isolate us away from the truth of God, isolate us away from those who hold to the same things that we do, to convince us that we're isolated even amongst ourselves in an effort to convince us to adopt the ways of this world. The second was an indoctrination. And that's why they changed their name. That's why they taught them the language. They attempted to draw them into this plan. The third was compromise. The compromise was feeding them well, treating them well uh, in order to make them more comfortable and more appealing to the ways of Babylon. And the fourth was confusion, whereby their names were changed from names that exalted the true God, Jehovah, to names that exalted the false gods of Babylon. But you remember again that Daniel and his friends, although they would use those names, they didn't fight against that as far as this name change occurred, but they continued to use their old names because that's who they knew that they truly were. They were not Belshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and and Abednego. They were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They knew where they came from, and they refused to let that go. So this morning, I want us to look at this idea of the resolve that David and his friends determined to do, and how through that faithful resolve, God's faithfulness was rewarded in their life. If you found your way there to Daniel chapter 1, again, let's stand together. We're starting at verse 8, and we'll read down to the end of the chapter. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid... 
of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink, for why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then he would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence in the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this manner and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. And as for thee, four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days, when the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them, not all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And Daniel continued into the first year of Cyrus the king. You can be seated this morning. As we noted earlier, Nebuchadnezzar's attempt was to completely brainwash or to re-educate these four young men. He knew how stringent and how strong the training and the teaching was that they had received growing up in Jerusalem was. He knew how committed uh, the Jews were to their faith, and so he knew he must break them away. And so, again, on the outside, some of the things that were happening there in this re-education attempt didn't seem to be very drastic, right? What, what was it so bad about the, the food and the drink? You know, all of us, I think, in this room this morning, we enjoy a good meal, love to go sit down at a restaurant and have a nice meal placed before us. All of us enjoy good food. So what was the big deal for Daniel in his mind and that he would not even allow that food to be given to him? I want you to first notice here in verse 8 that a decision was made. And this is important for us to understand. And in fact, in my Bible, the heading of this section is called Daniel's Resolve. And it's important for us to note this, that everything that happens from this point forward begins in this moment. This is not an accident. It's not by chance that Daniel ended up doing the things that he did. It's not by chance that Daniel accomplished what he did while there in Babylon. And no, nothing in our lives, again, happens by chance or by luck. Everything begins and happens, again, under the providence and the hand of God. But there's also these moments in our life where because of the willingness of an individual to do what God has commanded them to do, there's a decision-making moment. And it happens here for Daniel in verse 8. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the leader, from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. It says that Daniel made up his mind, that he purposed in his heart, some translations say. He made a decision here that despite what was going to happen, he would not defile himself. He would not disobey God. 
Now, we need to understand that Daniel knew he he had only been here for a little while, but he understood the power of the Babylonians. He understood the power and the might of Nebuchadnezzar. But Daniel purposed in his heart and made a decision. He said that for me, it is better to obey God and suffer the consequences of this world than to enjoy the pleasures of this life and to disobey God. And, And this is the decision oftentimes, friends, that we have to make, right? Because this is what we're faced with in many different occasions in our life. We can choose to obey God and suffer, or we can choose to enjoy the pleasures of this life and just disobey God. Now, which one is easier? It's easier just to enjoy the pleasures of this life and be in disobedience to God, right? Because we don't have to think about it. We just enjoy this life and things go on and we just get to enjoy it. Now, we understand and know that God is not long-suffering, like He's going to ensure that justice and punishment comes, But seemingly for a lot of people out there in the world, that's what they're doing. They're enjoying the pleasures of this life and complete disobedience to God. But we understand that as Christians and as individuals who desire to serve God, it is much better for us to obey God, even if our life is much shorter in this world, because we know the blessings that come from obedience to God. And this was Daniel's purpose here. Daniel knew that when he took this stand, that it could be very likely that his life would end almost immediately. He wasn't sure what was going to happen, but he knew regardless of what happens, I have to obey God. We must remember that faithfulness is oftentimes most profoundly demonstrated in the secret and the simple things. We oftentimes think about people being burned at the stake, and we see faithfulness there, right? We see people being obedient there, and again, obviously, that is a difficult thing, but oftentimes faithfulness is most poignantly demonstrated to us in the secret things that nobody sees. In those moments where we have the opportunity to either obey or disobey, and maybe nobody else will know about it, and we choose to obey because that is what God commands us to do. Daniel and his friends' faithfulness here set the standard, set the pattern to help them develop the strength that they were going to need over the years ahead. As I said, everything that happened in Daniel's life comes back to this moment where he resolved, he made up his mind that he would not defile himself. Now, it points out specifically, he said that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine. Now, commentators offer a bunch of, of different thoughts on this. Obviously, the first thing that comes up is the dietary restrictions that were given to God and were given by God to His people in the Old Testament, right? They weren't supposed to eat certain unclean animals, certain unclean beasts of the field and fish. And so Daniel says, okay, I'm going to obey God by not eating these unclean animals. There's also the understanding that in the Old Testament, before uh, the New Testament dietary laws had changed, in the Old Testament they were not supposed to eat uh, animals that were, had been sacrificed to false deities. And so David knew that these animals, these uh, items of meat that were brought to him and given to him had been sacrificed to the gods of Babylon. So both of those things are, are probably in Daniel's mind. But there's also the understanding and the allure of what happens when we allow ourselves to be given over sometimes to the luxuries of this world. Daniel knew that by eating the king's food and by drinking the king's wine, that he was going to be tempted to fall into that lifestyle. He also knew that to be provided for by the king was showing his dependence upon the king's provision, 
right? The king is providing all these things for him. So by continuing to take all that, he's demonstrating really, in a sense, his submission to Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon. And Daniel didn't want to do that. Daniel and his friends were resolved to please God in all areas of life, even something as simple as the food and the drink that they were going to have each day. Some translations use the word resolve there in that passage. And every time I see the word resolve, I'm always reminded of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, probably one of the most well-known Puritan preachers, probably most well-known for his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Where if you read church history, he had preached that sermon many times before. Nothing had ever happened. He was out traveling again, preaching at a church that was not his own. And he preached that message again, and God's power fell in that community. And God used that sermon to radically transform New England. But Jonathan Edwards is a man who was one who knew what it meant to be resolved, who to commit his life. And in fact, early on in his life, he sat down and began to write out some resolutions. And these resolutions were not for anybody else. In fact, I'm certain that when Jonathan Edwards wrote these things down, he never thought or dreamed that some 200 years later that people would still be reading those resolutions that he wrote down. They were just for him. But he, he wrote these things down because he said in this, he says, remember to read over these resolutions once a week. He, he wrote these things down. He's like, this is how I'm going to live my life in a desire to be obedient to God. Now, we don't have time this morning to read through all 70 of these resolutions that Jonathan Edwards gave. But I do want to read just a few of them to you. Because it helps us to understand the mindset of someone who has made a decision that I'm going to serve God rather than the world. I'm going to give my obedience to him despite what may happen. Resolution number one, resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be the most of God's glory and my own good profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time, whether now or never, so many myriads of ages hence. Resolve to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolve to do this, whatever difficulties I meet with, however many and however great. Resolved, if I shall ever fall and grow dull so as to neglect any part of these resolutions, to repent of all I can remember when I come to myself again. Resolved. Never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God nor be, nor suffer it, if I can avoid it. Resolved, never to lose one moment of time, but improve it in the most profitable way I can. I love this one. Resolved, when I feel pain, to think upon the pains of martyrdom and hell. Basically what Jonathan Edwards is saying, he's like, when I think I have it bad, I'm going to think about the martyrs and the flames and realize that I have it pretty good. Resolved to act in all respects in both speaking and doing as if nobody had been so vile as I. And as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others. And that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and provide only an occasion of confessing of my own sin and misery to God. I would encourage you to look those up online and read through that. But what we see there again is a man who has said, I'm going to do what the Lord desires for me to do. When we resolve to do that, when we resolve to please God, despite what may happen to us, we will always find ourselves in the best place that we can be. 
may not always be the easiest place. Sometimes great difficulties will come on a decision to be obedient to God, but it is always the best place that we can be in our life. We, we need to remind ourselves of that. But we think in this world, we're oftentimes told, right, you, you do what you have to do. You, you know, it's sometimes, you know, you make decisions and people say, well, you know, it's really not that bad. Everybody's doing it. And, and if everybody's doing it, you might as well do it too, right? It makes your life easier, makes you more successful, makes you more happy. And right, there are temporary pleasures that come for a while, right? You can cheat on your taxes for a number of years, but guess what? Eventually it's going to keep, catch up with you. Now, but in that period of time, you can enjoy all the extra money you have by not paying it to the government. But eventually they're going to find out and they're going to come for what's theirs. And it's the same thing with sin. You can enjoy sin for a season. You can enjoy the pleasures of it. But eventually the penalty of sin will catch up with you, whether in the physical life here or in the, day, in the age to come. So we resolve. We resolve to commit ourselves just as Daniel did here. He made a decision. His friends made the decision alongside of him. It's seemingly in the way that it's worded here. Daniel immediately kind of made that decision and then his friends came along with him. But he made a decision that he was not going to allow himself to be carried away into the temptations of this life. But he was going to serve God despite what the consequences may be. So a decision was made. But now, secondly, I want you to see in verse 9 that in the midst of that decision, we see immediately God's provision for them because they found favor with the leadership in Nebuchadnezzar's household. He says, now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander. What this means is, is that God immediately demonstrated, okay, Daniel, because you and your friends have been faithful enough to make this decision, I'm going to immediately show you that my hand is upon you. I'm going to immediately demonstrate my goodness and my faithfulness towards you. His resolve paid immediate dividends because God granted him favor in the eyes of the leadership. What does this mean, though? We need to understand that Daniel here chose to operate in a way that maybe seems a little unusual to us, right? Because Daniel didn't just stand up and demand what he wanted. Daniel actually responded in such a way that shows and demonstrates a very Christ-like spirit of humility. Daniel and his friends did not refuse the training that they knew they were going to have to go through. They did not refuse the work that was at hand. They did not become obstinate or difficult in the way that they uh, acted uh, towards Nebuchadnezzar or the leadership of the kingdom. They weren't angry or haughty or belligerent, but in fact, they submitted themselves to what was getting ready to happen. But they did come with this one request, but they came to him in a very humble way. And because they came in this humble way and because God's hand was upon them, they found favor and compassion in the sight of the commander. I believe what we see here is a demonstration of what Jesus would talk about in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it become salty again? He says, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And he gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before, such a, before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And this is exactly what Daniel and his friends are going to do. 
right? Daniel and his friends are going to let their light shine for God in the midst of wicked Babylon. They're going to attempt and succeed to be salt in a world that needs saltiness. They're going to succeed in being a light in a darkened world. They're going to succeed in being a city set upon a hill shining into that. And in fact, we're going to find that in chapter two, when we look at that in just a couple of weeks, we're going to see this effect already taking place, even in the early years of Daniel's service and ministry there in Babylon. What Daniel and his friends endeavored to do was to use everything that was happening around them for their advantage in God's service. They said, okay, here we are. They're not sitting around complaining about having to be in Babylon. They're not sitting around saying, oh, woe is me. But they're deciding, okay, here's where we are. Here's where God has placed us. So let's use this to the very best advantages we can to the glory of God. Now think about that. Here, they're, they're in prison, and we're basically in a sense, I mean, they've been taken captive in this totally foreign land. I don't know about you. I don't know that I would have the same encouraging mindset that Daniel did. I'd probably be sitting around thinking about, oh, well, well think about what it was like back in Jerusalem, right? And, and here we are having to suffer in Babylon. But Daniel said, no, it's like, let's use this for our advantage. They acted boldly in the affairs of life, not in isolation. They understood that just as Joseph had said to his brothers, what somebody else, what they had intended for evil, God intended for good. And because of that, they found favor in the eyes of those who opposed them, favor from God because they were doing what pleased God, even in the midst of judgment. Because remember, what is happening to Daniel and his friends is God's judgment on the nation of Israel. They're in Babylon because God is judging the nation of Israel because of their disobedience. But even in the midst of judgment, God works in favorable ways for those who obey him. We should be encouraged by that. Because when we look around the world and we see God's judgment, we see God's judgment in the day in which we live. We see things happening around us that I think are very clear signs of God's judgment on this world. But we need to be encouraged that even in the midst of God's judgment falling on the world, God will still work in favorable ways to those who love him and obey him. God does not abandon his people even in the midst of his judgment because he is good and gracious and faithful, and he has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And his promises are yes and amen. He continues on. Excuse me here, I put my paper in the wrong place. Pause with me just a second. So Daniel and his friends found favor, and they're trusting and believing the Lord to do exactly what he said he was going to do. And they understand and know that in the midst of all this, that they don't have to be discouraged. Now, the commander in verse 10 is worried because he understands the severity of the king. He understands who Nebuchadnezzar is, and that Nebuchadnezzar is not a man who messes around. So I want you to notice that Daniel proposes a plan. Because the, the commander comes to Daniel there in verse 10 and says, I'm afraid of the Lord my king. He says, I'm afraid of Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar has told me to give you this food. He's told me to give you this wine. He's told me to train you in such a way. And he said, at the end of all this, he's going to come and look. And he says, if I don't give you this 
really good food and this really good wine, he's going to obviously be able to tell the difference because you're not going to look as good as all of the other men your own age. He said, and to do so would cause me to lose my own head. The fact that this commander is even having this conversation with Daniel and his friends is, again, a demonstration of God's faithfulness. Because when Daniel first refused to say, we're not going to have the food or drink the wine, the commander could have just said, yes, you are. And if we need to, we'll force feed it to you. The fact that this commander is even willing to have this conversation shows God's faithfulness towards Daniel and his friends. So Daniel proposed a plan. Verses 11 through 14 points it out. His plan was basically test us for 10 days, right? Let's just do a short test. For 10 days, let us just be given vegetables and water to drink. And at the end of those 10 days, you come back and evaluate us and and evaluate us against the other men our age. And if our appearance is better, then let us continue with doing what we're doing. And notice what it says in verse 14. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. So again, another beautiful picture of God's faithfulness and blessing upon Daniel. Because not only did this commander listen to Daniel's suggestion, but he said, okay, I agree. I'll allow this to happen for 10 days. Now, this was a bold request, right? Because nowhere in the scriptures... Nowhere in Daniel's reciting of the story do we see that God told Daniel, okay, Daniel, once you make this request, if you'll tell him after 10 days, we'll have a test here and allow you to see the difference, then I'll act. No, Daniel just, he said, well, I'm going to trust the Lord here, right? Here's what God wants us to do. I know God wants us to be obedient. So I'm just trusting. And I'm going to say after 10 days, because God is faithful and God is good. After 10 days, we're going to look better than all the rest of these guys because Daniel knew his heart was to please God. And because he had complete confidence in what God would do, he knew that after 10 days, there was going to be something different. So we see a resolve that Daniel and his friends determined. Secondly, I want you to notice that God rewarded their faithfulness. Look at verse 15. And at the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better And they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. The end of the 10 days arrived and there was no doubt to the king's overseer that something had happened. We can assume that during that 10 days that the king's overseers had his doubts right? Because how could this work? These other men are getting meat, the meat and potatoes, the finest meat, the greatest wine, and all Daniel and his friends are eating is water and vegetables. Now, I think I pointed this out a couple weeks ago, but you remember a few years ago, there was this big trend in, in Christianity as happens from time to time for the, for the Daniel diet, right? It's like, oh, just eat water and vegetables and you can lose weight. Well, the scripture actually says the exact opposite here. He says that after these 10 days that Daniel and his friends, after eating vegetables and water, were fatter, healthier, stronger than all the other ones there who were there alongside of them in Babylon. Again, how could this be? Again, it's a demonstration of God's faithfulness. That there could be guys over here whose caloric intake every day was probably 
10 times what Daniel and his friends were getting every day. But yet Daniel and his friends at the end of it were fatter, stronger, healthier looking just on vegetables and water. So the king's overseer comes to him and he sees this. And no doubt he's amazed at this because they look so much better than everyone else. And so because of this, even though beginning he says, I'm afraid of what will happen to me if Nebuchadnezzar finds out, I'm afraid of what's going to happen to me if he notices the difference, he agrees to allow them to continue with this diet of vegetables and water for this period of three years. This is the results of this test that Daniel proposed because God's going to reward their faithfulness. God is going to do what he promises to do when we trust him. Now, I want you to notice the continued results of this resolve. Verses 17 through 21 points this out, that the stand that Daniel and his friends took was rewarded again by the continued demonstration of God's faithfulness in their lives. This first trial prepared them for everything else that laid ahead. As they resolved to stand, they showed that they were demonstrating their trust in God's faithfulness and His ability to carry them through to the end. This is a defining moment. When we talk about Daniel, we often talk about if you were to say, okay, what's the, the, the greatest heroic moment in Daniel's life? I said, oh, that's easy, Daniel in the lion's den, right? The fact that he could lay down there in that den with all these hungry lions and have no fear. What was the greatest moment? In, in, in Daniel's friends' lives. Oh, well, the fiery furnace, right? They're thrown into this fiery furnace and they stand with the resolve and they're brought out. My friends, I would challenge you this morning that one of the greatest moments in Daniel's life is this moment here where he made the decision to obey God rather than men, where he made the decision that he was going to obey God despite the circumstances. It was this moment that allowed Daniel to endure the lion's den because he saw God's faithfulness demonstrated. It was this moment that allowed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to withstand the trial of the fiery furnace because they already had seen God's faithfulness demonstrated. They were reminded of it. They trusted in it. They knew it. And why did they trust in it even in this moment? Well, because they had seen God be faithful for countless generations before them. They looked back on the history of Israel and they knew that God had always been faithful to his people. They looked back even at the moment that they were in Babylon because countless prophets had come and told them, this is what's going to happen. If your people continue to refuse, you're going to be carried away into exile. God had promised it in Deuteronomy. If you reject me, another nation will come in and carry you into exile. So even in the midst of judgment, Daniel knew God is faithful. We're in Babylon because God is faithful. We're in captivity because God is faithful. Brothers and sisters, All we have to do is look back. We look back at our own lives. We look back at the lives of our parents and our grandparents. We look back at countless Christians who have lived through the 2,000 years of the church and the 4,000-some years of the Old Testament. And what do we see? God is faithful. And so we don't have to be discouraged We don't have to doubt. We don't have to wonder, is God going to do something? Yes, he is. Is God going to be faithful? Is God going to provide? Is God going to provide an answer for us? Yes, he will. Because he has said he does. And he always has. Sinclair Ferguson said of these these men, they had committed themselves to the promises of God. 
And there is no other way to discover whether or not he keeps his promises to us. They committed themselves. And they committed themselves because they knew that God would answer. So there are three ways in these closing passages that we see God's faithfulness demonstrated to them. And these are demonstrated not just in the events, but just in their own personal lives. The first thing we see is God's faithfulness seen in knowledge. Notice there in verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of dreams and visions. The entirety of Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah's life was in God's hands. Daniel says here, as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. All were given. Every single one of them were given something special in this moment. They were given a knowledge of literature and wisdom. Now, again, remember, they're alongside of other young men who are being trained in the very same things. They're all in a a re-education camp, or since they're being trained in all the ways of Babylon. But for some reason, God gave them something special outside of what they were just gaining from this university that they were in. And such things are always a gift from God. Remember what James tells us? But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Wisdom and knowledge and understanding is a gift from God. John chapter 3, John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. What's interesting here is what were Daniel and his friends learning? They were learning all the wisdom of Babylon. And it wasn't as if Daniel and his friends were able to just not go to class on the days when the wicked things of Babylon were being taught to them. They were learning all of it. They were learning all the wisdom and the knowledge of Babylon, both the good and the bad. But what God was doing for them was giving them a discernment to be able to eat the meat and spit out the bones. They were able to take what they were hearing and understand, okay, because not all knowledge is evil, right? There's good knowledge. Now, we would not say that mathematics is an entirely religious aspect, but we know that good knowledge comes from God, right? So if you sit down and you learn mathematics, you learn science, you learn astronomy, all those things are good. So those things they were learning in Babylon, and Daniel and his friends were able to take those things and apply them and use them for the good of the kingdom. But they were also able to take the things that they were learning about the wicked gods of Babylon, the wicked behaviors of Babylon. And they were also able to take them, take what was good out of that, get rid of what wasn't. But why was this necessary? Because for Daniel and his friends to be able to do what God had called them to do, it was necessary for them to understand the culture that they were in, just as it was for Moses. When Moses was in Egypt, he had to understand that culture of Egypt in order to be able to do what he did. Now, they weren't given over to it. They weren't susceptible to it. They weren't submitting to it. But they understood the culture in order that when what we're going to see here at the end of this chapter, when God puts them in a position of power and authority, they knew the system enough to be able to use it to glorify God and to honor God even in the midst of great evil and difficulty. And my friends, I think this is one thing that as Christians, we need to learn more in our day and age. 
Oftentimes what the church has done when it comes to things that are happening in the world around us is we tend to run and isolate ourselves from the world. And we say, okay, we're going to go over here in our holy huddle and we're just going to let everything go to chaos out here. But I very clearly believe that what Scripture teaches us, both here in Daniel and other places, is that we're to take what we know and we're to go into the world and we're to use that knowledge for the glory of God, to do God's work in the midst of a wicked world. When Jesus says, you're to let your light shine before men that may may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven, he's not talking about just hanging out in the church all day. He's talking about going out into a place where the light needs to shine. So Daniel and his friends were endeavoring to do this. They're going out so that they could, as the scripture says in Acts chapter 7, be able to put to shame the wisdom of this world by the hidden wisdom of God. This is our purpose. This is our plan that we're to go out. Now, listen, we talked about this. We, in a sense, are in the same way as Daniel. We are in exile in a land that is not our own. We are citizens of a kingdom that is not here, but a kingdom that is yet to come. And we are waiting for the fulfillment of that. But while we're here, we're living as citizens, not in this world or not of this world, but in this world. And it is our desire to be obedient to God and to use what he gives us. So Daniel and his friends were given wisdom and knowledge. But notice what it says at the end of verse 17. Daniel was given something even more. It says Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Daniel's special gift from God enabled him to discern dreams and visions. Now, in the time in which Daniel lived, there were a lot of people who claimed that they could interpret dreams. There were a lot of people who claimed that they could hear about a vision and they could tell you what it meant. But what God gave Daniel here was the ability to know whether a vision was truly from God and therefore actually true or whether it was an invention of man and therefore false. Because there were a lot of people who would come up and claim to have these visions and desire or, or divinations, but it was just something they were making up to try to contain their own power. Daniel could truly tell whether something was from God or not. So God's faithfulness was demonstrated in the knowledge and the ability that he gave to Daniel and his friends. But God's also faithfulness is demonstrated in that he put them in a place of position and authority. Look at verses 18 through 20. Then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's personal service. And as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in his realm. So the three years of this re-education camp had passed, and Daniel and his friends are brought before the king. The king is evaluating all of them, right? Not just Daniel and his friends. He's evaluating all of the young men who had been in this training. And he brings them before. He, he, he begins to ask them some questions. He begins to talk to them. He begins to inquire about what they've learned and the things that they've heard. And the scripture tells us here that out of all these young men, the king said, there's not any of them like these four. These are the top, the cream of the crop. Isn't that amazing? That the four who were the top out of all of them are the four young men who had refused to be indoctrinated by the food and the wine. The four young men who had purposed in their heart that they would not defile God. The four young men who had committed themselves that although they were in exile, they would remain faithful to their God. God puts them into this place of position because it tells us here that the king brought them and entered them into the king's personal service. 
really there's no other higher ranking that you could have in the nation of Babylon than to be inside the king's personal service. That means that they were right there in the palace. They were right there alongside the king. They were some of the ones who were closest to him in this understanding and this, in this position of, of wisdom and understanding because the king was oftentimes seeking out those around him who could help him understand and make decisions. And isn't it amazing that although God had allowed his people to be carried off into judgment in Babylon, even though his people were being punished, that God said, I want to take four of you and I'm going to put you in a place where you have influence and position and power in the wickedness of this kingdom to help it overcome, to help give light into darkness, to help speak truth into error, to have power in such a way that would be entirely impossible outside of God's faithfulness. One commentator said this, God placed them in a unique position where they could be a blessing to their captors and build up the society they found themselves in while at the same time enabling them to remain true to him in the midst of extraordinary pressures. Because see, the, the beautiful thing about the position that God put Daniel and his friends in was that it enabled them to continue to remain faithful to God because they were in a position of high authority. If they had been somewhere else, their decision to reject certain foods, their rejection to live a certain way and to desire to be obedient to God would probably have been called out much sooner than it was. But because God had put them in a place of position, they didn't have to worry about it because they were the ones making the rules for others. So God blessed them in this position. The final thing that you see is God's faithfulness and longevity. Look at verse 21. It says, and Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged that God does not just demonstrate his faithfulness to us at one point in our lives and then leave us alone for the rest. God demonstrated his faithfulness for the entirety of Daniel's life. Now, you remember Daniel was probably around the age of 14, 15 years old when he entered exile into Babylon, and he was there for the entire 70 years of exile. So now some Daniel in his, in his mid-80s, when Cyrus the king defeats Nebuchadnezzar and takes Babylon, Daniel's still there. And God is still faithful. God has carried him through the entirety of that exile. And Daniel is able to see Cyrus come on the throne and to tell the people of Israel, okay, you can go back. You can go back and begin to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Daniel endures this entire 70 years of exile and all the way through, as we're going to see in this book, God continually demonstrates his faithfulness to Daniel, not just when he's 14 or 15 years old, but through the entirety of his life until the very end. I believe that's the reason that Daniel puts that here in chapter one, right? Because it's just one verse tucked onto the end of this chapter. But what Daniel is demonstrating here is that the faithfulness that God began in the beginning, God continued to the end. And we have that same encouragement. The scripture says that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. God's faithfulness remains in us. He will not reject us. He will not cast us aside. If we are his, he is ours and he remains faithful. Though we are faithless, sometimes he is always faithful. And we can trust in him and know that he's going to carry us through to the end. I'll close with 
a quote from one of their commentators. His name is uh, Degud. Listen to this. He says, If the Lord could keep these young men faithful to Him in their situation, then He is surely able to keep us faithful to Him in our much lesser trials and difficulties. No matter how overwhelming our situation may seem, God is able to keep us through it. It is His work from beginning to end, and He will do it. Brothers and sisters, this life is not a life, again, that happens by chance. It happens under the sovereign purposes and will of God. And if it's His plan and in His purpose, He will do it, and He will keep us through to the end. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your words of encouragement in this passage this morning. Again, we remember that although Daniel and his friends resolved, Lord, and took a stand here, that, Lord, the hero of this story is not Daniel. The hero of this story is you. Because, God, you demonstrated through their resolve your covenant faithfulness to your people. Lord, you demonstrated, Lord, your ability and your power and your promise that you will keep us to the very end. How glorious it is to know, Lord, that in the midst of what we face in this life, that you're there alongside us. But Father, we struggle sometimes in our firmness and our resolve. Father, we struggle sometimes in our doubt. But may we be reminded, Lord, in those moments of questioning whether we should stand or give in. May we be reminded, Father, of your command to us to stand firm. In those moments where we struggle with, Father, whether you are going to be faithful or not, may we be reminded of the hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of stories from Christian history that demonstrates, Lord, that you will always be faithful to your people. May we never doubt that. Lord, give us the encouragement we need in those moments. Give us the strength that we need to stand. Help us, Father. Lord, even in the world that we live in now, Lord, help us to stand with resolve. Father, I pray that every person in this room this morning would do as Daniel did. Lord, we would make up our mind. We would make a decision that we would not be given into the ways of this world but to stand with firmness and resolve upon the truth of your word. And we ask all these things this morning in Jesus' name.